there something where we can talk for real? Because I'm sorry, who is this dude? Darius, man, man we're we talking over right here. When, when you first walked in, I gave you a cookie. No, yeah, I remember who you are. Look, I'm not asking for money. You should be. Ain't you homeless? Not real homeless. I'm not using a rat as a phone or something. Don't be racist, man. Like, that make you schizophrenic. That don't make you homeless. Wait, wait, not if it worked, man. Nah, if you could use a rat as a phone, man, that'd be genius. I mean, it's like five rats for every one person in New York alone. Everybody would have an affordable phone. Yeah, man, I mean, it'd be messy, but worth it. We have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok. Keep up the bad work. If you're gonna break the law, do not write a check. We're not gonna let Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cut America's meat. Tell me the difference between stupid and illegal and I'll have my wife's brother arrested. Every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the famous flame. Hello and welcome to All of the Above. I'm James Brown. Thanks for joining me. You can support my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com or liking, sharing, and subscribing. This is a show where we discuss ideas, big and small, with fascinating people like today's guest, Dr. Kyle Trimble. He's been a physical therapist for a decade. We'll discuss the ups and downs of his work and how he's become an important voice among Buffalo Bills fans with his site, bangedupbills.com. With no further ado, here's Dr. Kyle Trimble. Dr. Kyle Trimble of bangedupbills.com. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So, this may seem a bit, bit odd a question, but did you find physical therapy or did physical therapy find you? I would say physical therapy found me. Uh, what happened was I had a number of sports injuries growing up. Uh, to recap, I tore my left ACL, played football when I was 11, blew up my knee, playing soccer when I was 14, and dislocated my shoulder wrestling when I was uh, 16. I was on the left side. So I had my fair share of physical therapy and uh, throughout high school. And I remember sitting in the examination room after I blew up my knee playing soccer. That required a patellar uh, realignment. And we were looking at career discovery. And my wife, excuse me, my wife, my mom, who was a registered nurse, had said, hey, is this something you might want to be interested in uh, as a career? Because she worked in orthopedic, um, orthopedic wing at the hospital. And I said, yeah, maybe. So I started shadowing some therapists and realized, hey, this is sports. This is something that allows me to use a lot of things I like doing in school. And that's how it kind of guided me toward PT. And, you know, the rest is history after that. Wow. Wow. So relatively early. Yes. Yes. Well, did you un understand the concept? Obviously, you had to do uh, an amount with all three injuries, amount of physical therapy, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a ton. It, looking back now, you see what was good and what wasn't good. And because I worked with different therapists every time. and But I just realized the interactions I had with those therapists and then what it took to get back to what I was doing sports-wise. And I, I wasn't a great athlete. I mean, I was out there competing, but um, all those rehab sessions and things they're working on allowed me to even get back to doing those sports. And um, 
it, you just look back and see the stuff you did and then like how my experience in the, in therapy, even though that was going on almost 20 years ago for even the latest one, kind of shaped how I was as a therapist. You know, not saying that any of the therapists I worked with are bad, but you could tell where certain things really, you remembered more about certain experiences, like either certain re-obsessions or, you know, early on how I felt if, you know, therapy wasn't going well or, you know, certain timelines and different uh, with the surgeries. So I really was able to kind of take how being in therapy was like, and then put into what I am doing on the other side of it. I want to back up to something you said there that struck me. What wasn't good that they had you do? Uh, I don't recall this a whole lot, but my mom told me a little bit more about it. Because sometimes when you're in the moment, you're just like focused on that particular thing. But I remember with my patellar uh, kneecap realignment, uh, the therapists weren't really sure on what it could and couldn't do. And they were really having to go back and forth between the, the doctor and the therapist, try to identify what was safe to do and what wasn't. And I remember just doing the exercises and be like, okay, whatever. And my mom having the background being a registered nurse and then um, dealing with a doctor who had done my ACL surgery at the time or prior to that, um, I could just tell he wasn't thrilled with the care that I was getting because he knew why I wanted to get back to. I wanted to get back to sports. And of course, any patient he did operations on, he wanted to make sure they're getting the best care possible. So I remember it was kind of just a mumbled jumbled exercises, doing different things to try to get me moving along. And I eventually got back to doing what I was doing, but um, it was just really a lot of uncertainty. And looking back with some context, you know, from my mom and whatnot, I kind of realized, oh, this is where they came short. And this is where um, maybe it could have been better. But when you're you know, 14 years old, you don't know any different. You're just being told what to do. Right. Has the process evolved since then? With regarding... Physical therapy and recovery from that kind of injury. Oh, I, I would say so, yeah. Uh, you know, research comes out more and more. And they find out what works and what doesn't work. I think it just came down to uh, possibly the experience of those therapists that worked with me that time for that particular injury. Um I think that the process was down pretty good from what they wanted to do at that point. I think it might just come down to the experience of the particular therapist um, at that time, work with me on the injuries. So um, all the injuries I've had were well-researched um, with the exception of the ACL only because in early 2000, 2001, when I was going through that rehab, they were just starting to figure out, okay, here's the rationale behind the therapy for ACL recovery. Um, prior to that, it, it was kind of a mess. If you look back through the research, they had, they had different protocols and they didn't really have a uniform way of addressing that. So like they finally got that down with the ECL, but that was still kind of improving as they're going on. But the patellar realignment, the uh, labrum repair that I just got my shoulder, that was all kind of, Hey, this is what we got to do. This is what we got to get better. But, um, you know, 20 years later, I expect the rehab to be better just because they have more research to show what works when it doesn't work. I, that, that does connect a dot for me, some dots for me. Because I remember as a kid, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that ACL injuries were the end of many careers. And now <laughs> it seems to be the middle of a sentence for many of the careers. Yep. Um, is it because of the evolution of care? Oh, 100% with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so at my site, Bang the Bills, that you referenced in the intro, 
Um, I had actually even looked into this because um, Thurman Thomas of Buffalo Bills, everybody knows him. He partially tore his ACL in college and he played through that. That was why he dropped in the draft and which allowed the Bills to get him. And I remember looking and seeing, hearing that, and I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. So I looked into a little bit. I know John Elway was another one who tore his ACL and played his whole career and he was fine without it. And there's been other players. Um, Heinz Ward of the Pittsburgh Steelers also, he tore his ACL when he was very young and didn't realize it. And, you know, they, they kind of found it after the fact. But back in the 70s and 80s, they didn't even think the ACL did anything. And then they're finding how the, the knee shifts and, and, and gives out when you're trying to pivot and cut inward. And then they were at different times casting the leg for six weeks. If I recall correctly, they had it in partial um, knee bend during that time. And then they were trying to really aggressively bend the knee again. And there just was not a uniform way to get the ACL rehabs um, effectively addressed. So that's why you're seeing guys, eh, I'm going to skip the ACL you know, rehab. It, it, they might mess up my career. And then once they start getting things more uniformly addressed, they're able to find out what works, what doesn't work. And then we see this acceleration between getting guys out there as fast as we can and then seeing them struggle to get back into their former selves. And then we start to see that kind of back off a little bit where they say, hey, let's give it a little more time knowing that we don't have to get you back in nine months. We can wait that 12 months or you know, however long it takes so that you're not struggling out there and then have that, that mental anguish of not performing how you want to be. So it's constantly evolving and they're just trying to find that sweet spot. To have, and everybody's different with how they respond to those type of injuries. Speaking of your work and the work of your in your industry evolving, I'm I I've been trying to wrap my head around the types of physical therapists. How many are there? Are there many? Oh, there's there's countless. Uh, you could you can be specialized in anything. I mean, so trying to it's like layers of an onion. So you could look at is um, doing in. In hospital, acute care, you could do skilled nursing, like your nursing home, you could do home health, you can do outpatient, you can do pediatrics, and then you can specialize from there. You can do you know, geriatrics, cardiopulmonary, there's aquatic PT, the wound care, just I think I mentioned pediatrics, I, but you could just see a lot of different things of that. You can go into sports specialization. So, guys just work on with you know, football players or wrestlers or baseball players. You know, MMA, we're seeing a, a rise in that. Pelvic floor PT is a huge thing, especially women's health, you know, after giving childbirth and then just everything with um, urinary incontinence, even bowel incontinence, neurovestibular therapy, it, pretty much anything that you could have an issue for, a therapist can address in some way. So, I mean, just think about like how many old people fall. I mean, that's more of the geriatrics, but it also works on the vestibular stuff or that can work on just safety and a lot of diabetics we work with high blood pressure because of heart failure so you might be able to specialize in certain things but you still cover a lot of different areas because you have to be mindful of different um, core morbid health conditions when you're working with those people so for example you might have somebody with balance problems with diabetes because they have neuropathy in their feet which is that lack of feeling in their feet but they must all have congestive heart failure high blood pressure and you have to design exercises to help make sure they can maximize their mobility while not setting themselves back from a conditioning standpoint or mobility that they're going to fall because of doing something unsafe or cause some other type of health issue because they're maybe overworking themselves, for example. So wide array of positions in your field, are there some that you find more intriguing than others? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm more of a generalist. I do home health right now. Um, it, I, I see a wide variety of different uh, therapies, or excuse me, patients, and, and kind of do a little bit of everything there. The neuro and neurovestibular stuff is pretty interesting. Like you see after concussions, strokes, uh, your Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, a lot of that different stuff. It's just interesting how MS is a big thing in Western New York here. At least I see a lot of patients with that. And I have yet to see a MS patient present the same, you know, case by case there. And I say that in that there might be similarities, but everybody is different in, you know, the deficits they have and how they respond and what they respond to. So there might be clinical best practice approaches for PT. There might be techniques that do work, but not every technique works for every single person. There's not a cookie cutter approach that's going to say, I'm going to do this set of exercises with this person every time or get the same results. So there might be overlap with that stuff, but just trying to find out what works for that person and the deficits they have is pretty interesting. And um, something that's always, I'm always trying to evolve with that. That's, that's an area that I want to improve in and you just kind of read and see, you know, based off what comes, when those problems come up and how you kind of better evolve your techniques to get those people better. MS is big in Western New York. Is that something that's unique to us? Um, yes and no. I think there's, there's a lot of different reasons behind MS. Um, I've heard that some are environmental, some is, I, there might be some genetic components to that. I've even heard one thing somewhere around the, the latitude of the earth, like where we're at in terms of your geographic location. There's a number of different reasons why. I mean, there's people who have people, uh, family members with MS and then the other family members don't have it. And like I said, there's just a lot of different varieties or there, there's different types of MS, but then whether it gets expressed more than problems or how severe it's going to be, it's just a really unique case. And it just, we see it a little bit more prevalent up in the upper hemispheres for some reason, if I recall the research correctly. Wow. So uh, there's nothing in stone. It could be a, a number of different reasons. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's not just geographically located by means, but there's, I mean, people around the country and around the world have MS. It just seems like I've read in the research and, you know, this is going off of what I recall in school and just everything else after that, just, it seems like there's a higher concentration up in the Northern hemisphere. Why that is, I, I don't know. So anybody has a better reason why I'm all, you know, all ears. Very interesting. I want to uh, walk through a normal day with you. Tomorrow's a Friday. What's a normal Friday mm-hmm. like? So I do home health. I'm in the city of Buffalo. So I usually see four or five patients that day because I have to do a start of care, which is a longer evaluation, OASIS documentation. And there's a lot of documentation that goes into an evaluation like that because you're not just looking at the physical therapy condition. You're looking at the overall health of that person. So a lot of data you have to collect, including medications, understanding their whole health history, understanding the mobility, what type of assistance they get and whatnot. So that's the evaluation to do on a Friday, which those evaluations take a little bit longer to do. But then I'm also seeing a few people based off of whether I need to for regular evaluations or discharges or visits. So I have a few of those scheduled in the morning. Then I take the time and do my chart review to get my starter care going in the afternoon. Um, so those type of patients can be anywhere from just general deconditioning, you know, get out of a hospital for you know, a number of different reasons they fell or they got, you know, pneumonia, you know, the flu, what have you, or they could be, you know, a stroke where they are trying to work through, um, spasticity on the affected side that the stroke, uh, caused. They could be working through diabetes where they have poor neuropathy, like I mentioned earlier, 
They could have congestive heart failure where their heart is not pumping efficiently like it was before. They need to work on their conditioning and try to do the basic stuff like you know, walking around their home, get up and down stairs safely. There could be a number of different things. So you have to just be able to be ready to know what you're walking into and know what kind of things you want to address with that person that day. And some days are reproductive and others not so much, but you're working with people typically at their, their worst in terms of health and you're trying to build them back up and you're seeing a lot of different stuff every day, which means you have to be well versed in what you're looking at. So you're headed to them. Oh yeah. Yep. I go in their homes and I'm in some absolutely beautiful homes and some not, not so beautiful homes, but everybody thankfully has a home. And, you know, unfortunately we have good people, you know, that their home situation is fluid. I'll put it. So we have sometimes that, uh, get creative with how we see them. So, you know, for example, city mission, and we unfortunately do get people in those situations of doing therapy. And we just have to find a way to come to them and try to give them the care they need because healthcare, I believe is a right and not privilege. So you should be able to still get healthcare no matter where you're at. I believe city mission, if I'm remembering correctly, that's a homeless shelter, correct? (laughs) What stands out about working with that population? Those people are, they can be vulnerable. Um, I'm not saying that they're, they're just at a real vulnerable time in their lives because a lot of us grow up having a home, something over their heads. You know, we know where our food's coming from. We know where just kind of some stability. Those people have had everything ripped out from underneath them and they have pretty much nothing. They might have the clothes on their back and maybe a few belongings and they have to go seek assistance and, you know, get healthcare and food and a roof over the head and just try to find some stability. And unfortunately there's a lot of mental illness associated with that. And sometimes life just kicks people when they're really down and they're living in the car and then things, they get sick and they have to go to the hospital and just, there's a lot of different situations. Uh, I've had work with some of those people and that, you know, men and women, and it just, life sucks sometimes. And that's, I'm glad that that is kind of a safety net there so they can at least get back on their feet. I have seen success stories where people get out of a situation, they get their own apartment and they start kind of building themselves back up there. So you have to be mindful of what they're going through. Like, as I mentioned before, you're dealing with people at their worst with their health. But in this case, with dealing with the homeless population at times too, you're also dealing with them not only at their worst with their health, but financially, socially, everything else like that. So you need to be mindful of what you're asking them to do and just try to get them up and moving again so they can at least stand a chance of getting back on their feet, literally and figuratively. It's so interesting. Your your work takes you from one extreme to the other. Oh yeah. I've had I've been in multi million dollar homes and I've been in, you know, literally nothing. But like I said, healthcare is a I feel is a right and everybody should have an opportunity to at least have some basic level of healthcare to at least try to get, keep them moving forward. Has something on the job cracked you up? Cracked me as in laughing or cracked me as in like emotionally. How about both? Oh, I've had funny moments. I mean, you meet some incredibly interesting people and you just have good laughs, you know, and I think that helps break the ice of, some of those people are dealing with some really crappy health diagnoses. And if they have a good sense of humor about it, you can have a really good laugh with them. Or sometimes people are just really engaged and, hey, I want to get better. I'm going to give you my effort and my 
my willingness to work with you in order to help me get better. And I've had some really cool experiences where you see people where they really kind of low in terms of mobility and get them up moving around again and just kind of say, hey, I helped them do that. That was really cool. So, and you have some laughs along the way because you get to really know these people, working with them for, you know, six months, sometimes a year in rare cases, even just a few months, you really try to get these people built up. And also cracking from a emotional standpoint. Sometimes you see some really rough cases. I'm not going to go into specifics with them just, you know, for privacy and not that that would give away anything, but still there's just a level of, Hey, I'm not going to go there with that. But just some things I'm thinking about right now, it's just like, man, how sometimes read the background of these people or, you know, sometimes the social histories of them or what they're dealing with. And then the social aspects of that. Sometimes people are just in a really tough spot and you're just like, I, I don't know how I would be in that situation if I was presented with that. Sometimes it's, you know, the health condition and then their family around them, or sometimes the living situation. And it can kind of just really make you question a lot of things. I don't want to say you have to become detached, but in a sense, you're, you're there to do a job and you want to just try to make sure that you don't want to get too emotionally involved because sometimes it can be tough to pull yourself out of that. And I think any healthcare provider would say a similar thing, you know, looking at some of the situations they've worked with over the years. My girlfriend's a nurse. Okay. She's expressed similar things. You know, you kind of have to build a bit of a callus. Very much so. Very much so. And it's not even like you don't want to be empathetic, sympathetic, you know, to their situation, but sometimes you have to just say, Hey, I'm here to do a job. I'm here to help you get better. And, you know, I, I, I hear you. I understand what's going on, but know that you kind of distance yourself in order to do the job. Cause if you get in too deep, then it's really hard to kind of really look at the entire forest through the trees. If that, you know, um, saying is correct there, but sometimes if you get too deep in with these people, you really lose focus of what you're trying to work on. And then you become part of their problem instead of part of the solution. And just listening to your description of your day, you're not giving an entire day to one person. You have to no, no. you have to move on to the next case. Absolutely. So sometimes you have a really tough case and you know, whether it's emotions are flying or they just were very difficult to work with, sometimes you have to hop in your car, take a break for a second, and then find a way to move on. And that can be the same thing as if you're in the hospital or if you're in, you know, the nursing home, outpatient clinic, you know, what have you. Sometimes you have to just step back and say, okay, on to the next thing and just kind of keep moving there. Then maybe you process it later. And it's not saying you stuff down your emotions, but sometimes you have to say, hey, I got to keep moving along and then kind of work through it later if you do need to. Is sports analysis a respite for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, you had a love of football. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, being a Bills fan, it's been a blessing and a curse, but um, <laughs> it, it is a nice respite. I, I get to combine what I do from a therapy standpoint, writing standpoint, and then just being a fan and kind of combine it all. So it is a great respite, a you know way to blow off steam, especially like if I'm on lunch, if I can write up you know some stuff or research stuff, it's kind of just a way to kind of shut everything off and just, I'm allowed to use my degree, but I'm not trying to solve problems in a sense. Like I still am writing and trying to figure out like detective side of things, but I'm not having to solve uh, a patient's problems and it can be a way to shut things off for me and just allow me to kind of refocus. 
you're obviously not getting firsthand information. You're getting information that the team is releasing, that maybe the player is releasing, and you're seeing the video. How much can you tell about a injury from watching a video? You can tell a fair amount. The big thing is the mechanism of injury and you know what they're doing. Not every injury is going to have a clear mechanism of injury. Sometimes you look, it's like, how did that happen? But usually if you start seeing similar patterns, you're going to expect to see certain injuries there. So the big thing with ACLs, for example, is you're cutting inward and it's that valgus force to the knee. So you get the internal rotation of the hip, the valgus force to the knee, and then the, the foot's usually kind of way outside the body and try to pivot on that. We saw it with Von Miller. We saw that with Tredavious White. We've seen that with countless athletes that have torn the ACL. So the, the always the concern is, I hope it's not the ACL. I hope it's just the MCL. Or, hey, I hope it's even a meniscus like we thought with Von Miller at the beginning. Other stuff include you know, labrum, rotator cuff tears. You see like a fall and outstretched arm. If you see a guy kind of fall with their arm close to their body directly on the shoulder, then you're thinking AC joint sprain. Some hamstrings, you kind of see deceleration, or sometimes if you guys see, you know, suddenly speeding up and they start to grab at their leg, then you start thinking hamstring. The popping sensation that you see guys starting to cut real suddenly, and then they kind of just go down real quickly. You start worrying about Achilles. So there's different certain patterns and things like that, but it's far from a absolute way. It might just be another piece of the puzzle trying to figure out what happened and, you know, everything else with that. But still, the best way to determine what the injury is. Is through a physical exam, which I'm not able to do at, with the bills, but uh, still the information from the team that they give out, the reporters, the video that they have, and it kind of really helps piece the puzzle together. And sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, but it's a video analysis. You're kind of guessing based off of a professional judgment. What are the unknowns? The imaging um, is one of them. We don't know the severity of those injuries. We saw that with Josh Allen. I mean, with his elbow injury, we saw the injury happen. That was a speculation of what was going on. They said that that was what was going on was the UCL injury. We didn't know whether he was going to try playing through that. We didn't know how severe the injury was, how much pain he was in, how he was responding. And he shocked me and I think everybody else when he ended up playing against the Vikings that next week, which was crazy because he even said the doctors were thinking two two to four weeks out i believe it was one of the other unknowns is mental makeup you know how they're able to respond uh, that's one reason why i feel like i missed the Tredavious white thing because that was his first major injury when he tore his acl and he struggled a lot from trusting his leg we found out later and coming back um so we don't know how these guys are going to respond mentally and then also too if there's either injuries that they're dealing with that maybe aren't publicly known you know we can tell a lot in film but we can't tell everything some injuries are real subtle and you don't see them unless you're pointing it's kind of a big red flag later on after the fact so there might be something else to saying hey this guy has a hamstring but okay why is he taking much longer oh well there might be you know labral tear or something like that or hey he might be having a calf you know strain as well or there might be other issues we just don't know about until they come out later and say, hey, he was dealing with this, this, and this. And, oh, that kind of paints the picture why it took so long for him to come back. And, you know, they're not going to tell us that from a competitive advantage, but there's just sometimes the variables that we aren't privy to because, you know, they want to have a competitive advantage thinking that that guy may play and still perform. I can see, especially thinking about Tredavious White, a, a guy in a, in a position where you're cutting all the time, you have to move very fast and you're going against, in a lot of cases, the fastest guys on your on the other team. Uh-huh. 
and you're moving backwards a lot of the time. I'm wondering, and I can see with with other athletes having where mental blocks can be a part of the recovery. When it comes to an, an average person, someone like myself, let's say I, I'm going through physical therapy, I'm recovering from whether it's an ACL or whatever the injury is, how much do mental hurdles weigh on us? I, th- I still think it's going to be the same or similar. Uh, similar is probably a better word. Uh, regular people, you know, such as you or myself, compared to professional athletes, the biggest thing I come it comes down to is can I trust that joint or can I trust this event won't happen again? I get a lot of people with falls that, you know, they, they fall once and now they have this fear of falling again because it's happened once. So it's trying to, you know, get them to say, hey, we're doing these activities, we're doing this, we're, we're, doing whatever the intervention is to try to help build you up so this doesn't happen again. Accidents can and do happen, but it, just because it happened once does not mean it has to happen again. And we're trying to do preventive measures to make it happen uh, so that you can either prepare if it does happen again, such as bracing for a fall, or in case of an ACL, we're trying to make you work on all the strength and make sure that you wear that proprioceptive ability and your need to understand where you're at in space and how to cut and move fluidly like you did before and know that you're not going to do the same things that led to this in the first place there. So the mental hurdles can be big. Everybody responds differently. You don't even need to get like a psychologist involved. Sometimes it can help. You know, I know the team, the Buffalo Bills and you know, most professional teams have one, but I find that a lot of times you have to just have the people do the activities and let them trust themselves again in order to get out with mental hurdles. And a lot of people do, some people don't, and there might be other stuff going on there. But the more you can get them to trust themselves, the better they can go with the mental hurdles and say, hey, I can do this. It's okay to be fearful about it, but we don't need you to be letting fear dictate all your actions and prevent you from doing the things that you need to do. Trust themselves or trust their body. Are those separate things? They can be. They can also be one and the same. Trust their bodies. You know, people that are older that sometimes you know, have lost the ability to do different things, you know, like they wanted to, or, you know, because of different health issues, I keep going back to neuropathy because that's a very common thing we see. They know that their feet are on the ground, but as soon as they start walking, they don't know how much off the ground they are, how, you know, much they're pushing, or if their foot's going to clip the rug, or if it's just going to, the rubber's going to skip and you're going to fall down. So a lot of times they have to trust their body and knowing that their body's going to speak back to them and tell them what they're doing so they can respond accordingly and also trust themselves so you know, that sometimes they get the idea that hey i don't have the ability anymore and do i can i ever get that ability back so they can be different they can be one of the same it just depends on what you're working on and get the bot the person to say hey i can do this and i'm working on addressing the problems so i can get back to doing that so there might be better ways to describe that but i'm just trying to go off the cuff and just try to you know say hey Sometimes it's it's a physical response to what you're getting feedback from the body. Sometimes it's a, hey, I don't trust myself and I need somebody to kind of give me a kick in the butt to say, it's okay, I'm going to be okay. Just to make sure that we're on the same page here, neuropathy, from what I recall of it, it has to do with nerve pain, nerve degeneration. Generalized decreased sensation, and you can have it anywhere, but we see it commonly in the hands and feet. Um, sometimes you see it with nerve damage, you know, after 
uh, stroke sometimes. You see a lot in the diabetics because the free nerve endings with the inflammation, it kind of just fries the ends of it, to lack of a better term. And so you get that pins and needles feeling constantly. So it just lost the ability to kind of finely tune where you're at in space. So it might say, hey, I know my foot's down there, but I don't know whether I'm really wiggling my toes or if I can feel my big toe versus my, you know, fifth, you know, pinky toe. It just really loses the ability to kind of finely tune where it's at. Like if somebody points two points there, they might say, hey, I feel a point, but they can't differentiate between two different points there. Um, so that can lead to a lot of falls with them not being able to move their feet effectively, push off or, or strike the heel. And then the hands, they might not be able to finally manipulate objects such as you know, beads or if they're trying to work with spoons and forks or you know, zippers, strings, things like that. There, So it can really affect a lot of activities, daily living, mobility, and prevent people from doing things that they need to be, need, need to be doing. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about DeMar Hamlin at all. I've never seen anything like that in my sports fan life, but apparently it's more common in baseball. That's what I was seeing when I was doing some of the research for that. The Comoscio Cordis is what they thought. They've never come out and officially said that's what it is, but there's been definitely some cases where they see a, a sudden object hit the, the heart just at the right moment and it disrupts that electrical current in the heart. They have seen it in hockey too because it's a you know, dense object, the baseball and hockey puck and whatnot. But that was a freak thing. You know, watching broadcasts, you can't really tell what's going on. Didn't, you know, Ireland, the, the beat reporters kind of tell me what's going on. And I realized it was a big problem when I remember looking at my phone and Alex Brasky of the Batavia Daily News had tweeted out they're doing CPR. And I'm thinking, holy cow, that is not a normal thing on a football field. You expect to see them hit the stretcher, the, the backboard you know, get these guys off and you realize what's going on and, you know, they're trying to cut back and forth with that. But it was a rare event. He's, I know Jamar Hamlin's going through all the testing and he's even posted pictures up on Instagram of him going through some of the, what looked to be stress tests and just make sure everything checks out there. Um, that was an absolute crazy situation. I don't know if we'll ever see it again. I hope we don't see it again, but we're seeing a lot of good come out from his injury DeMar Hamlin met with the president today and then try to get AEDs and all the youth programs, high schools, everything else like that. It was a horrible event, but it seems like a lot of good is coming from that event. More awareness is what we need. And because a lot of kids play sports and, you know, how many times has this happened where somebody could have been saved and they weren't because the proper equipment wasn't there? I must say, I, I am surprised that we don't have an official diagnosis. Usually, when an injury happens, we have at least some sense of what happened, even if it's in, in the NFL, it's usually a bit more specific than let's say hockey. Very much so. <laughs> Where upper body injury. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. What do you make of that? There might be some privacy things. Maybe they're just continuing to rule out certain things. Like I think they have a pretty good idea what happened, but I think they may just either there might be a different number of different reasons why. I would think that they have a pretty good idea what happened now. Maybe just out of respect for DeMar until he's ready to come back and play fully, which it sounds like he's trending toward. Maybe they'll talk about it then. You know, may, maybe it's a publicity or a PR, you know, thing to say, hey, he did he, the, you know, claps on the field. We, we saved him. And maybe they don't want to reveal what happened. And I know there's some tinfoil people out there saying the COVID vaccine and whatnot. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't believe any of that stuff, but God forbid if there was some correlation with that, 
I'm sure they wouldn't want to get that out there, but there's a reason why they haven't told us. Uh, we don't know why, but I hope that they're going to let us know someday because everybody on, you know, in the nation and the world saw what happened. And I think that when you have an event like that, there should be a little more transparency, at least to what happened. So in case there are risk factors that somebody has, you know, maybe do they take a you know, second look at whether I should play that sport, football, baseball, hockey, what have you, or, you know, whenever else, you know, just the more educated you are about an event going into it or a sport, I think the better you can be. So you don't have a adverse, you know, events such as Demar Hamlin or any other stories. Like we saw Chris Pronger back in hockey or the baseball players that you read about with this, uh, Comercio Cordes. It makes me w really wonder, you know, uh, Pronger, I believe came back. We know JJ Watt definitely came back and played after he had a heart issue mid season. <laughs> So it's not impossible in just the broadest of strokes because you obviously you don't have the particulars for someone to have a heart issue and then come back and be an elite athlete. Yeah, that's what we've seen. Uh, I know Teddy Bruschi, uh, he had a stroke when he played with the Patriots and came back to play, which was impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every seems like every year. Yeah, it's incredible that, I mean, it was minor, but it's still a neurological event, yeah. you know, caused by, uh, you know, a cardiovascular event. Every seems like every year we didn't see it this year, but it seems like every year one guy gets flagged with a heart issue at the combine, and they just want to make sure the heart's okay. But we've had enough stories over the years that you know the screening process—that's why they do the stuff at the, all the different combines, so to make sure everything's okay, that they're not having any events like that. And if they do, they can take care of what they need to. And every once in a while, you get a guy who develops a heart issue, or um, sometimes there's different things that that prevent them from returning to the sport. But a lot of times, you know, medical marvels and progression of a lot of guys go back to those sports that, that you know with proper medication management they can go back and play with little or no risk um i'm thinking about you know guys with blood clots chris bosch with the uh toronto well he was with the toronto raptors and the miami heat and whatnot yeah. but i think he's able to come back and play after that but we've seen other guys over the years have the blood clots and just make sure you're on the proper blood uh thinners we saw tommy sweeney with his myocarditis mm -hmm. after his covid he's able to come back and play so I think it's just having access to the medical care and just knowing that you're being monitored and saying, hey, we're going to pull you if something's happening, but we think based off what we know, you can go back and perform safely um, based off of these rigorous tests we're doing. Dr. Kyle Tremble, any famous last words? Uh, go visit bangedupbills.com. I work hard on it. I, I really do enjoy what I do from a analysis standpoint that we touched on a little bit. I love the Buffalo Bills. I love being a PT. I love talking about the sports injuries and the Bills in general. So uh, if you're interested about what's going on with the Buffalo Bills or physical therapy in general, make sure to check out my site. Always willing to talk you know, in the DMs. And I think education is the biggest thing we need to understand with healthcare. If you don't understand why you're doing something or what you're doing, you're not going to try to better yourself or go through with what you're doing. Like if you're trying to achieve an activity. So... I think the education is the biggest key with that. And that's yeah, the basis behind my side is to educate, have people understand what they're seeing on the field and reading so they can have a better idea of what to expect from their, you know, favorite player, favorite team, et cetera. So yeah, go visit my site. That's a shameless plug, but I enjoy being a PT and I mean, I'm here to talk with you at 930 at night and about PT and I, I just love doing it. So. And I, and I thank you so much for making the time. <laughs> Of course, this, this is fun to do. I, I, I really say no to these things, and you know, I figure 
Any chance to get a chance to get them from the microphone? It's not for, you know, my own benefit, but every conversation I have allows me to share the information that I have with everybody else. And maybe somebody learns something or, you know, gets inspired or, you know, wants to dig into something that they wouldn't have dug into otherwise. Dr. Kyle Trembo, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to all of the above. Let me know what you think wherever you're listening and do me a favor, share with a friend. You can follow my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. This is a people-powered enterprise, so if you can, become a paid subscriber. All subscribers in the first 60 days of the show get 20% off for life. One of the perks is an after show. Kyle joins me to play 10 the hard way, 10 rapid-fire questions, that take our conversation in surprising places. Thanks for listening. And as always, be well.